I'm Katil Hayek. Welcome to a new interview for our program Syria Now. I will speak today with Rana Khalaf, an independent Syrian research consultant. She is also affiliated with Chatham House as an academy associate and with the Center for Syria Studies at the University of St. Adros as a non-resident research fellow. We'll talk about her new research projects. Hi, Rana. Hello, Katy. We are very happy at Status to host you again and to learn about all the amazing research you are doing. Thank you and Status for this opportunity. Rena, can you tell us about your latest paper governing Rojava and what are your major findings? So, yes, basically today, Katy, uh, if we look at the Syria maps, which ha- are colorful and have become very popular, we see um, the military advances, we see who's controlling who, which areas in the country, and accordingly, uh, this is how many analysts and policymakers calculate their next intervention in Syria. So if we look at the three uh, strongest actors today controlling, the, or let's say con- uh, those actors that are controlling the biggest chunks of uh, the land in Syria, we can look at ISIS as one player, at the Syrian regime as another player, and as at the PYD as a third player controlling those uh, big chunks of the country. But beyond those colors of military rule, how are these areas governed? Uh, what are the local dynamics? Is, it, is this governance sustainable? Because whatever we do as humanitarian actors, activists, researchers, policymakers, or even citizens interested in the political dynamics in the region, we need to understand governance during conflict to be able to contribute to peace and state building in the future in Syria. So as its title connotes governing Rojava, layers of legitimacy in Syria, this is a Chatham House paper that seeks to analyze how the PYD, through its leadership of Rojava, is attempting to expand its governance structure to consolidate power and to create legitimacy for itself. The paper focuses on factors and institutional mechanisms that helps the PYD to do so. And these are three key factors. Uh, The provision of security, the effectiveness in the provision of public services and public uh, diplomacy. But the paper finds one shortcoming or one missing link, and that's legitimacy. So to help understand how did the PYD succeed relatively better than anyone else in its area. When it's a newcomer to Kurdish politics in in Syria, it was founded in 2003, and we know there are Kurdish political parties, the first one still existent today, started in 1957. So um, what we find out is the right moment has come, and the PYD was ready to make use of this right moment. So the right moment lended itself as the Syrian uprising was overshadowed by conflict. And this conflict precipitated in a governance vacuum in areas where the Syrian regime no longer exists. In fact, even in areas the regime controls, we see this disintegration of political authority. So looking at the PYD, we we find that it skillfully navigated this environment to found its Rojava project 
And if we look, and these are basically three cantons across the northern part of the uh, country uh, that the PYD says um, it intends to create a federation and based on the notion of Jalan's, its leadership's notion of democratic confederalism. So how did it happen and how did this right moment come for this creation of um, the intent to create a federation beyond the uh, um, historical expectations for the Kurds and the PYD. And here I like to differentiate between the Kurds and the PYD, and I will explain how the Kurds are not one entity represented by just the PYD. So looking at it, we find that th there was a non-aggression pact with the regime where these areas were spared the shelling of the Syrian regime. Another factor was the rise of ISIS that triggered international intervention and thus security deals with the PYD. And then we see support by Kurdish constituency across the world due to long-term oppression by heavily nationalist nation states that they lived in, be it in Syria, Turkey, Iraq, or Iran. So this all formed the right moment, how was the PYD ready? Basically, the one very critical uh, factor that helped the PYD get to where it is today is that it was institutionally ready. The PYD did not just exist in 2011 with this governance point. In fact, it, it had institutional infrastructure experience, networks of governance years before the Syrian uprising. So what did it make out of them? And this is where we look at the three factors I just spoke about, which is the provision of security, the effectiveness in the provision of services, and public diplomacy. And in fact, when, when I was mapping civil society organizations in PYD-controlled areas, I found that the YPG, which is the armed group of the PYD, was highly popular amongst certain population in Kurdish majority areas. But the further you went away from a direct ISIS threat, the more were the criticisms against the PYD. The YPG was still looked upon as a hero. Now, in Arab majority areas, the uh, dynamics were totally different, where I heard some activists in Raqqa suggesting that uh, this is totally an invasion, and some of them have highlighted that would, they would rather uh, they see ISIS and the PYD as two evils, the better of which is still evil. So here we look at the different dynamics, and but still we see part of the um, legitimacy creation for the PYD is this ability to provide security to the locals from the ISIS attacks and from the regime shelling, shelling at the same um, time. Now, the second factor is the provision of services. So we see it as a function, the PYD instrumentalizes as a means of consolidating its power. So uh, in areas, and this differs between the different cantons, the PYD controls, I was told that even those who are highly opposed to the PYD, that the PYD provides food, fuel, electricity, and one of them highlighted that even fuel reaches to your door, despite them being highly authoritarian. So whether they were pro or anti the PYD, we see activists citing the provision of services as something very important to them. Now, how these structures work and evolve, uh, have evolved, it's 
through what the PYD calls a democratic autonomous administration. Now, how this exactly functions, this is what I call smoke and mirrors. There's a lot of vagueness about this democratic autonomy and how it actually functions and where the power lies. But eventually it seems to be that the key decision maker, decision making um, not are within the hands of the PYD. Now, the third important factor is public diplomacy and image uh, management. And again, we see the PYD strongly appealing to international audiences by presenting its fight against ISIS as a battle between the universal liberal values and extremism. It presents itself as uh, ecological, pro-gender equality, women, women, pro-women, Uh, And we see this co-presidency that is relatively different from other areas across the country. And again, it presents itself as a secular force. However, this is is the vision that is seen by externals at the local level. What really appeals to the local Kurdish majority are the undertones of uh, Kurdish nationalism discourse. And to the Arabs it seems that there is very little knowledge about this Rojava project. And despite all the discourse by the PYD about them not wanting uh, to separate and to create this democratic autonomy and to roll it out to the rest of the country, there's a lot of lack of trust in the PYD and its intentions amongst Arab communities. So again, here we see a contradiction in the discourse, and this contradiction is very vivid through the flag. Which flag is raised in Rojava? Is it the Syrian opposition uh, flag, the Syrian regime's flag, the PYD's flag, or the Kurdish uh, flag? And there is a lot of claims that it's mainly uh, the PYD flag, sometimes the regime in areas it co-governs with the regime, as in Hasake. And we see a lot of the, uh, the the embodiment of this contradiction of the discourse very vivid with this flag image. Now, all of these suggests have increased the um, the legitimacy of the PYD, but we see this legitimacy heavily contradicting and missing due to issues with its local trust and representation. So actually, Rana, I want uh, you to like elaborate more on this like last point because you conclude your paper by highlighting the importance of local trust and representation. Can you elaborate more on that and on what the scene looks like today on Rojava? So basically, legitimacy does mean the provision of results from the provision of services, of security, and from uh, public diplomacy and image management. But these are factors or authoritarian regimes and states do very well, relatively well. Legitimacy implies more than that. And this is the understanding of legitimacy here is more about its maximal meanings. Legitimacy implies social and political trust, enforced public acceptance of the governing power relations and structures, as well as responsiveness to shared rights and obligations. Without those, the effectiveness and legitimacy of any governance can't be sustainable. So if we look at Rojava internationally, we see that its legitimacy, um, its chances for legitimization are slim. It's not lost on Rojava leaders that they have made momentary friends, but no lasting allies. 
For the U.S. and other Western countries, Kurdish forces have been supported militarily as their ability to fight ISIS has corresponded with these countries' security interests. The challenge for Rojava leaders is to leverage this into support for the wider Rojava political project. Yet again, strong opposition from Turkey um, appears to prevent such recognition. Turkey views the Rojava project as a threat that could trigger similar Kurdish ambitions within its borders. As Turkey is a member of NATO, its fellow members are less likely to support Rojava beyond fighting ISIS and terrorist groups. So what does it do? I think this increases the imperative for the PYD to invest in local legitimacy. And yet again, we see that Rojava itself, and let alone the Kurds, is not a homogeneous place. So if you look at the Kurdish um, Kurdish areas or what is called Kurdish areas, we see that the Kurds are highly not homogeneous. Some Kurds are, um, they're divided into three main camps. So there are those who are, who back or look to the Kurd, uh, Kurdistan regional government or the Barazanis as their political ally. And these forces remain engaged more or less with the Kurdish National Council that is, that is in a way, affiliated or engaged with the uh, Syrian opposition. And there are other significant numbers of the Kurds who are with the PYD. And then there are other group of Kurds that are uh, do not fall into either of those camps, and they remain unallied. Now, plus these, we find other ethnicities, both indigenous and displaced, that coexist with the Kurds in Rojava. So we have the Arabs, we have the Turkmens, the Shishans, the Yazidis, and the Syriacs, which themselves are five Christian ethnic communities. And in terms of the claim of the land, historically, this existed in some of the areas even before the Kurds. So again, here we see the rise of ethnic identity tensions, if not, if governance is not held in a more um, democratic manner. So looking into some of these minorities, which the DAA suggests it represents, we see the Syriac Union Party has formed its own defense militias, the Storo, and this collaborates with the Asayish, which is the PYD police. Meanwhile, the Syriac Military Council shifted focus from being anti-regime to to fighting jihadists with the PYD, but it still continues to try to retain its independence, and such alliances can be transient and sometimes even contradictory. So again, we see groups with the regime also having their own Sotoro and other groups like the Assyrian Democratic Organization, which is more inclined to the national coalition. So this is in terms of those who who live in inside the Rojava governed territory. And I'm speaking more mostly about the Kurds and the Syriacs. But what about the other bigger group, which are the Arabs and Arab majority areas. So again, we see this whole dynamics is triggered. We see micro tensions rising to the surface. And these are usually old, sometimes tribal um, tensions. And this has really increased the mistrust between the Arabs and the Kurds. Now, the violations each side have inflicted on each other increase these tensions. And again, the political discourse, which on one side sees the opposition remaining Arab nationalists and still trying to assimilate the Kurds under a Syrian Arab Republic and to see them as 
political parties rather than people with rights. And on the other side, the discourse that uh, that is around the pragmatism of the PYD and how it is ready to sell any of its neighbor for for its increased territorial control, let alone its deal with the regime has further fueled those tensions. So um, look at, let us look at one an example of PYD control in Arab majority areas, and this is this is basically uh, Mambij. So if you look at Mambij, we see that there's a lot of mistrust amongst the local communities towards the PYD and its governance project. So the PYD is said to have dismantled the elected council there that had been operating prior to the takeover of uh, the city by ISIS. And in its place, the PYD has appointed its preferred local council members. Now, the PYD says that this council is affiliated with ISIS. However, the new council it has elected is seen by the local activists and researchers is formed of members of families historically linked to the regime and thus further distrusted. They highlight that one of the Mambish local council's member, Farooq al-Mashi, uh, whose cousin Hamad uh, al-Mashi, is part of the People's Parliament that's subservient to the regime in Damascus. So these al-Mashis who returned to the area after the PYD took control of it are cited to have violently attacked demonstrations five years ago in their role as Shabiha. And while this sign has linkages between the PYD and the regime, the power remains with the PYD. One local notes, al-Mashis and others remain a, a facade. They have no power to sign any document. And according to one of these council members, they don't know where their orders come from. They don't even know how the hierarchy works. They only implement orders. And actually, even according to, to um, as per one um, woman, actually, activist from Mambij, uh, she has highlighted that she has heard from her Kurdish um, friends that the PYD was willing to hand back the area to the regime and not to the uh, uh, Free Syrian Army. So here we see the level of distrust between the locals in these Arab majority areas and the PYD itself, even though many of them have cited that they have been very happy when the PYD uh, took over the city from ISIS. So this coexistence is shaky in a way. And it's, this makes it very important that the PYD looks into its local legitimacy beyond its uh, security and service-based actions and claims that it's just fighting ISIS and act now to ensure that Rojava institutions are actually accountable to the people, not simply to its own command structure. And eventually, the PYD and other actors in Rojava will need to engage with one another, especially in light of all the opportunities and challenges that the Rojava project poses. However, this engagement needs to ensure that PYD creates space for the locals and for civil society to govern. Without this local legitimacy, the PYD governance project will only be a time bomb that will trigger further fragmentation and security across Syria, and the region. And that's why it's very important to look at governance during and not just post-conflict. Rana, I also would like to uh, discuss with you another research project you authored, uh, Women in Emerging uh, Syrian Media. What you can tell us about this project, why it's important, uh, what were your recommendations to improve the situation of women in emerging Syrian media? Uh, yes, Katie. We were looking at uh, gender equality in emerging Syrian media. So if we're saying that the Sy uh, this is a Syrian revolution, 
I think it should be a revolution at all levels. And gender is one of those power inequalities that needs to be investigated and shaken. So we wanted to investigate with the uh, Senior Female Journalist Network whether the dominant discourse and social practice exasperate existing levels of inequality. So what we looked at, we looked at the period between 2011 and 2015, and we we looked into those emerging Syrian media, basically the print magazines and journals and the radio. And we looked uh, at two things, women workers and the discourse on women. So uh, on women workers, we focus on uh, uh, the process of production. We focus on basically on uh, all those inequalities at work. As for women in media, we focus at the discourse in the emerging senior media outlets, and that was basically in magazines and newspapers. Uh, Our assumption was that if gender equality is to be achieved in practice, a set of empowered women and men, media professionals who adapt gender sensitivity in their daily work will go hand in hand with a more critical and uh, and gender sensitive media discourse. And what did you find uh, in this regard? Actually, the the report looked into three different layers of discourse. We understand that this is a conflict situation, so we we need to be very aware of the um, of the context. So we we really looked into um, into that context, and then we looked into the process of production, and we looked at the. Uh, text itself. Uh, we supported this by a participatory mixed methods approach, where we uh, we carried an online survey with the emergent Syrian media. We held face-to-face interviews and discussion groups. I will start with the with the key findings related to um, uh, to the context. And um, overall, the findings were in a way um, uh, motivating, but in many o- other ways they were in need of much more critical thinking. Uh, so we realized that all these structural issues with this inequality between men and women were actually uh, accentuated by the current context. So despite this increased space, which has opened up uh, for civil society, and we saw that before the uprising, we only had state-controlled and private regime business-linked networks of media, and now we have we we mapped actually over a hundred emerging Syrian media, and that's just print, uh, newspaper, and magazines. So we saw that despite this increased uh, space that helped them grow, the rise of armed groups and their tyranny has affected the outreach and content of the, the this print emerging Syrian media. Even the so-called the moderate groups are very tyrannical when it comes to women, for example. So the, these were limiting the operations of women journalists by prohibiting their uh, movement, unless ac- uh, accompanied by a muhram or man. And we see that many of these groups actually heavily censor emerging Syrian media on the ground, um, particularly those targeting the coverage of women's issues. In fact, in one of the areas, we heard by one uh, news outlet that um, their print magazine was rejected to enter this area because in a cartoon character the woman was not veiled, which is um, which is very uh, which is very shocking in a way. So again, and then we found that twenty percent of the emerging Syrian media under review said they can only publish certain media material relating to women 
online because uh, because of this censorship on the ground. And many, and let alone that many other outlets engage of, um, in self-censorship by themselves. So again, this is related to the context. Now, if you look at the process of production, which really impacts the representation of women, we find that in terms of the topical coverage on women, again, the political and conflict situation does affect uh, the emerging Syrian media and the representation of women. So we see there was strong coverage on violence and victimhood of women. And uh, we see, um, and despite this, we do see evidence of effort to contest the stereotyping of women and of a small yet important trend of covering women's experiences and success stories. And there seem to be some positive signs that some uh, emerging Syrian media have a good understanding of the gender biases against women. But again, the question remains about how and when these good intentions are actually translated into action. So when the discourse you hear every day is about a woman being the victim and the man being the hero or the fighter or, or, or. And it's the same situation that men and women coexist. So many men could be victims too, but we see this narrative of victimhood mainly targeted at, at women. So again, we see the assumptions made here by society about and about the need to protect women all the time and that they're helpless actors in need of support all the time and even in need of man a man to accompany them. So so this is the importance of, of the discourse and the assumptions that go on with this media and how important the content is. And again, when we look at the, the amount of coverage of women-related topics, it, we saw that it was extremely low, hardly reaching um, around 200 articles per year. And that's in the best case scenario. And uh, we see it increasing seasonally in, li uh, in line with events such as Women's Day, uh, Mother's Day, and this is when everybody writes about women, and then again, it's forgotten when uh, when these events go. And now, we try to understand, so who makes the decision on this coverage? And we found out that it's often ad hoc and driven by the circumstances on the ground. So we cannot say that the emerging Syrian media has strong um, agenda does and that you know that they plan a year ahead it's mainly ad hoc driven but what they can change is that most of the decision makers were men and men in turn dominated the coverage and as data suggests uh, men are less likely than women to go cover topics related to women so while the quality of this coverage is important the involvement of women in decision making about what topics to cover is really critical and here goes one recommendation to increase the number of women uh, decision maker uh, decision makers in these outlets now again one of the positive findings that we did not find in Syria pre 2011 is the number of women working in media that come from uh, vulnerable socioeconomic backgrounds. Usually it was the better educated, richer women that were able to um, to penetrate into um, especially the new private media in the country. And here we found that on average 54% of these ESM workforce, especially in radio outlets, are women. And that over a third of the emerging Syrian print, print force, 35% of them are women, which is a very good number. However, when it comes to the seniority or who are the senior decision makers, uh, while in radio this was uh, much more positive, we see this as a challenge that needs to be covered. Uh, only 4% of the senior emerging Syrian media journalists are women, which is a very, very um, weak number. And then we looked 
again into the text and we found four key findings, um, four trends in representing women. So one was that women are active players in the public sphere uh, and they were given most recognition when famous. The second trend was that women were either non-existent at all or just confined to the public, uh, private sphere at home, etc. And there was a third trend where women were generalized and used as victims and to promote causes not specific to women. So, for instance, to promote a discourse against the regime, it was on the victimhood of women as being raped, as being left as single mothers, as etc. And the fourth trend, we see this uh, uh, objectifying uh, women, seeing them mainly as objects of beauty, incapable of political involvement. So again, if we if we really want to understand how society, because this media reflects journalists' input who are part of this society, but it also reflects the societal demand and what the society wants to read. And we see ourselves in a vicious circle. Whenever you ask journalists, they say this is what the ground wants, and for the grounds, this is what the media is presenting. So if we eventually want women in political parties, we need to change and challenge this um, discourse. And we need to, to, to change the way women are portrayed. We need to start portraying them as active. In need of solidarity and partnership, yes, but not necessarily in need of sympathy and help all the time. So again, if we, we, we looked at different things, we looked even at the verbs, we followed a method of a critical discourse analysis where we uh, analyzed the adjectives, the verbs used, the images, the, the parallels in the terms, uh, what you, the politics of language. And in terms of verbs, we found that women are around three times more likely to be passive, having something done to them than active. And usually what's done to them is violence rape, torture, death, you name it. And then even those verbs that would portray women as engaged in something, uh, we, say, uh, we see women basically saying, engaged in behavioral processes related to uh, feeling. And, and in a few cases, we saw a woman in uh, just a very few cases in mental processes as realizing notices. And in only very rare cases, we saw them as um, depicted in existential processes of being and becoming. So even when a woman, uh, when the verbs related to women uh, were active, women were mostly dreaming. So we need to be aware of our use of verbs. And now again, in terms of the images um, of women, we found that there's a deficit in terms of the effective use of visual language. A lot of of misconceptions of and so a lot of the times we saw that the text is totally not related to the photo we saw an over over representation of conservative sunni women from one socioeconomic demographic therefore again creating a stereotype of these women so again there's a need for uh, esm producers and editors to pay more attention to the context and select photos which are more context appropriate and to try to cover and cover stories of the unique and even less represented women. So yeah, and and all of this basically takes us to to realize if we are to really challenge those power dynamics, we need to use media discourse uh, as an opportunity to create more healthy power relationships and to challenge those hidden relations of, um, of power. And this will improve the context and the existing dis uh, discourse production altogether.
These are very important recommendations. Thank you, Reno. I want also to ask you if you are working currently on a new research project, what are your future research projects in general? So basically I'm looking, I'm still looking on governance in Syria. I'll be looking in the new future again on the relationship between the PYD controlled areas and its neighbors, mainly Arabs. I'm totally fascinated by those local orders of system and how how they those dynamics how they evolve and how they will impact the future of Syria whichever direction we move now i might be involved in another project with emerging media in libya should we win the bid so fingers crossed thank you so much rana khalaf for talking to us about your new research projects and we hope that you keep us updated in the future with all your wonderful work for status on Katir Hayek, thank you for listening and please join us again for another edition of Syria Now program at status.